The movement for black lives exploded in 2020 after the death of George Floyd. Across the cities of the United States, people filled the streets, demanding radical changes to the police system as the first step to systemic change. Today, we are thrilled to be interviewing a leading organiser and thinker in the movement for black lives. His name is Maurice Mitchell. Maurice is the executive director of the Working Families Party and a long-time community organiser. He became active while at Howard University and has worked with the Movement for Black Lives since Ferguson. In this conversation, Maurice generously shares some of his early traumatic experiences of racism. He talks about his extensive organising experiences, identifying lessons that remain important to his work today. We unpack 2020 and look at why the movement exploded now and how direct action and creative collaboration have defined its success. This is a special conversation, jam-packed with truly creative insights about change-making. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Maurice, welcome to Changemakers. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We are honoured to have you on this episode, very much so. So thank you for making the time. I hear you've got some stuff on at the moment. There's there's quite a lot going on. We are approaching quite possibly the most important election in any of us, any of our lifetimes, uh, those of us that are alive in the States, in the, in the U.S., and at the same time, our largest social movement is the, the front page news. The movement for black lives has has sort of caused a reckoning, a a once in a generation reckoning around uh, racial justice, around black black lives, around the condition of black folks in, in this country. And so both of those things are happening concurrently. And uh, so our movement is on fire. Yeah. And you have a pandemic. I feel like we're at the center of multiple storms, right? So we're experiencing a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, a once-in-50-year civil rights and racial justice moment, and a once-in-a-lifetime electoral moment, you know, all taking place at the same time, all during a, a global systems collapse in terms of our economic systems, and a it's exposing is exposing the limitations and the failings of our economic system, of our healthcare delivery system, of our social systems, of our of our global sort of um, public health systems. It is both breaking and making apparent all of the fault lines that have existed before this point, and it's all happening in real time right now. Uh, the the ground under our feet 
is is shaking and moving as we attempt to develop strategies. So it is a novel time, just to, to take a word from the virus that is so much <laughs> like the, the mark of these times. It is a novel time for all of us, which I think requires a lot of humility and thoughtfulness and the ability to game out all different types of scenarios as you build. So that's, yes, certainly where we are. Yeah. And we want to understand where you are in this. Mm-hmm. You, Maurice Mitchell, are in this uh, extraordinary drama. So to start with, Maurice, I was actually wanting you to tell our audience a little bit about what do you think is distinctive about how you seek to make change in the world? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think one of my one of my superpowers has to do with this thing called uh, double consciousness. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois coined this phrase double consciousness to explain how black folks perceive their world in the United States. Now, we are a bit apart and a bit part of the American fabric. And so we're able to see things from the standpoint of the dominant culture. And we're also able to see things from the standpoint of our culture. So we have this double consciousness. It's how we stay alive. It's how we've always been able to protect ourselves. So when I get stopped by the police, I immediately am seeing myself through the eyes of the police. And I'm also seeing through my eyes in order to stay safe, in order to not die from a police interaction. And that's been true for us since we came here as enslaved Africans. Our need, our, just based on survival, to have two forms of consciousness, to have two lens on which we see the world. and and two languages in which we're able to represent our world. And so I am the byproduct of a black immigrant experience, right? So I grew up with Caribbean immigrant uh, parents. My dad was from Grenada, my mom was from Trinidad. My grandmother came here as a domestic worker. So inside my household, I experienced this very Trinidadian sort of context and as soon as I opened my door, I was in the U.S., right? Yeah. And so I I both have an affinity and a deep connection to the African-American experience. I went to Howard University, which is the mecca for black education. It's like the mecca internationally for black folks. Black folks from all across the country come to Howard University. And I feel very much at home and connected to the black tradition in the U.S. I also feel a sense of otherness in the U.S. because of the immigrant background. I feel this other otherness because I am a black person. And so this ability to be both part of and removed from at the same time, I think, has allowed me to be an effective strategist because you need to be you need to have your skin in the game and you also need to have some distance so that you could be an effective, thoughtful, sober strategist. Yeah, wow. And so part of me is now wondering, when do you feel like that started to emerge for you, an awareness of this? Most of my, most of the grounding of my politics and most of the grounding for what would eventually become my role as a organizer happened relatively young. 
like I said before, my grandmother came here as a domestic worker and both of my parents followed her eventually and settled here and had to hustle to figure things out. And I, I was born in the late 70s, 1979. And so this is, you know, 1979 is a pivotal year. That's the beginning of the neoliberal era. And that is like the dawning of the era of mass incarceration and the crack era. And I experienced all those things, like all those things up close. My mother worked at, in Far Rockaway in Queens as a nurse. And she specifically worked as a detox nurse, a detox nurse is somebody that helps people with chemical dependencies be able to get free from their chemical dependency. And she was dealing with people with multiple chemical dependencies, people who are experiencing homeless with chemical dependencies. Again, crack hits, so a lot of folks who were addicted to crack and alcohol and, you know, and coke, and who also had mental illness and chemical dependencies. And so that was very, from, the, from early on, that those experiences were real because my mother was bringing those home. And this is something that only somebody who grew up during the crack era can understand. I grew up in a suburb of New York. And I think when people hear suburbs, they think, um, oh, it's probably nicer. And in some, some parts of Long Beach where I grew up, is really nice. And crack hit Long Beach heavily. My next door neighbors, you know, participated in, in the trade. And I remember we hours of the night people coming and knocking on doors, sometimes knocking on our window because they got the address wrong. Another example, early on, this is very early on, and I remember it, I knew this was wrong. I'm in first grade and I was tracked into remedial classes, right? And I remember distinctly knowing that it was racialized in first grade, right? Like I, I knew that I was going to these classes because all the black kids went to those classes. And so at that age, once you're tracked, you're sort of uh, stamped very early on as somebody who is not, it's not worth investing in that person. It's not worth providing them the same educa educational opportunities. And from first grade to uh, I think third grade, I was in remedial math and reading because the education, the, the level of education was very, very one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I excelled. And so I was doing fifth grade math and reading in second grade. And eventually <laughs> they moved me, right? And so I knew that that was, that was all structural racism. I didn't have the language for it, but I knew what was happening. And I felt the shame. And I felt so shamed that I didn't know how to talk to my parents about that stuff. And all throughout my, my experience, I would experience how the school system or teachers who didn't believe that I could read and write at the level that I could read or write would assume that I was cheating, for example. These are traumas that sort of cleave off sections of your headspace and heart space and awareness that, that form this double consciousness and triple consciousness. And so, Pretty early on, I had a structural, not, not analysis, but a structural sort of assessment of these problems. I saw how the, the women that raised me, my grandmother, my, my mother, some of the obstacles they had to overcome, I saw how somebody's immigration status, 
I was the only person in my household that didn't have a, a green card. How that impacted how people would interact with their society. I saw how clearly how race showed up in people's lives. By the time I was very young, and I know this is very odd, I knew I wanted to be an organizer by fifth, sixth grade. So I guess that's... Oh, my God. I mean, it makes perfect sense from everything you've described, but that is a huge conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I knew. And, I, you know, just to explain more, my, my parents were products of the 60s, and they, they came from countries that, that recently got their independence from Great Britain, and they felt very connected to this whole anti-colonial pan-African effort that was taking place throughout, throughout the world, this anti-colonial sort of thrust that was taking place throughout the world, and this, this sort of sense of pan-Africanism, this idea that that all of these people in these black countries in in Africa and the Caribbean were beginning to wrest their independence from colonial powers, they brought a lot of that consciousness into our home very early. Very early on, it just kind of made sense to me, you know, coming from those early experiences and leaving the, the relative safety and happiness of this Caribbean immigrant, black Caribbean immigrant extended family, like many of my aunts and uncles and cousins also lived very close by in the same city, in the same town. And then jutting up against the dominant culture and the structures of the dominant culture very, very early on. And, and understanding, it registered very deeply that it was wrong and that it had something to do with my identity, that these things were happening, even during first grade, right? Like it, I was aware of what was taking place and I knew it wasn't right. It wasn't just. But also, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the um, confidence to in real time form a response to it. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, this experience where like somebody says something to you and you only, like, by the time you get home, you're like, oh, I should have told them that. <laughs> like, I have a yes. response to them. Uh, and you're mad at yourself because it took you, like, too long to respond to them. That's how I experienced racism, yeah. right? I, I absorbed it. The more I absorbed it, the more I, I, I suffered the trauma internally. And I had an internal dialogue about, oh, man, like, if I could have responded in this way, if I if I had the right words for that teacher or if I had the right words for my peer who, you know, who said that racial slur or if I had the right wherewithal to deal with law enforcement in this way or that way. And I think that was like a pressure cooker in me. And also those traumas were deeply un- unsettling. At a certain point in my life, I was determined to develop the tools to be able to analyze and respond to those traumas and to ensure that other people who came after me wouldn't have to experience that as well. I remember it so vividly. It was me and this girl, Stephanie, and my teacher, Mrs. Friedman. I remember her, her inspecting us and marking us for remedial class and and like not even not even talking about us away from earshot. So <sighs> we heard her inspection and I, I remember her carrying some sort of paper 
that marked us. And I remember feeling the shame of it. And I remember from that day forward, me going into these into these classes that I was aware were for the black kids because the system had viewed us as being less deserved of what the white kids had. And it was only through like a just a random set of circumstances that, and I think just because I overperformed in those environments, at some point, an individual, not the system, but an individual teacher who noticed intervened. So I, I witnessed how individuals, even in the midst of systemic racism, could intervene. And how problematic it was that it took an individual to intervene for another individual, myself, to free me from the stain that these systemic devices sort of place on black children. And so a majority of the black young people that I went to school with, we, we were tracked. Many of the people that I originally went to school with, as we went, as we came through, either had some interaction with jail and prison, didn't graduate. And I connected back to that, to those moments when we were very, very young and we were marked as insufficient. We were marked as undeserved. It shouldn't take an individual making an intervention for another individual when the systems are so awry and just wrong. And so that was, if I had to diagnose myself to understand what it is about me that is um, my offering to social change, it's my ability to be deeply in. And, you know, I'm, I'm even making an epiphany right now. So I was deeply disturbed, but I didn't know how to access my voice. So I had to become practiced in observing and even observing trauma that happens to me and observing that trauma both as the subject of that trauma. And so I now use that as a tool for strategy. I've taken a psychological device that I've, I use since birth to deal with white supremacy and racism, and I've used it as a tool to be an effective strategist. My ability to be in, to feel very deeply, and then to also view everything, including myself, from a distance that feels safe for me so that I could take action to preserve myself. And now I'm not just using that action to preserve myself, I'm using that action to defend my community and then to be on the offensive. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that it's really helpful for people who've not experienced racism because they're white to have a sense of what it's like and not that not that we can from just a simple description, but for your openness and honest sort of explanation of how it's impacted you, I think it will help others understand a little bit better. Yes. Like the last thing I'll say is that racism is trauma and even very, very young people know when racism is happening. And it registers as a very, very traumatic event for very young people. If I were to explain 
the impact of racism to somebody who's never experienced it, like the interpersonal impact of racism, it is psychological and psychic trauma. But it's psychological and psychic trauma that is meted out on a communal level. It is it is a collective trauma. My skin, my black my, my black skin reads reads a certain way to the dominant society and therefore marks me for this indiscriminate violence, psychic violence. And it is daily, depending on who you are in race and class, you experience, you, you experience it different, but there's no escaping it. There's no escaping it for black people. And so we have to develop very early on coping mechanisms so that we don't self-destruct due to the daily uh, deprivations and the daily indignities that is that is under the broader umbrella umbrella of of white supremacy and racism. We have to develop these these skills, these survival skills, and all of us, some of us are better than others, and some of us can't, and some of us break, and we lose every generation. Generation, we're losing a generation of people who who are ill adept at survival under that communal torture. Before this year, if you were to cast your mind across your quite extensive career, are there key moments that you think, as an organizer, you became prepared for what happened in 2020? I knew about the history of Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, who is a fellow Trinidadian and a leader in SNCC, I actually was privileged to hear him speak before he passed. He was very ill and he was dying. And he used every moment of his life, including the last moments of his life, to organize. He was such a, a, a proselytizer when it came to organizing. And he was trying to organize people into the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. But he understood that 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 those politics might not be for everybody. And he said that every black person must organize. And it was better for black people to be organized under the Urban League and the NAACP, organizations that he wasn't a part of and that he probably had some critiques with, than to, not, than to be unorganized. So he invited people and he said, if, if the All-African People's Revolutionary Party isn't, isn't the place for you, find an organization that is aligned with your values and join it. If that organization doesn't exist, build it. When, when he said that, it was like he was talking directly to me. And I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that where I'm in a room filled up with hundreds of people and I felt the speaker was talking to me. And when I heard it, I didn't need any further provocation. I heard it, I received it, and that became my mandate for the rest of my life. So that is proof point number one. Number two, my first direct action, my first large-scale direct action also happened while I was at Howard University in the year 2000. And this was after Prince Jones, a classmate of ours, was killed. We all took up his cause and all felt, we were all deeply traumatized because he was a, a classmate of ours and he was killed by an undercover police officer. I remember, like, I got called by somebody to go to this sort of snap meeting and it was a group of all of us, and it included a number of people. It included the 
student body president and people who represented different bases. And by then I was known as a campus organizer radical. And the intention was to hold a march down Georgia Avenue. And I remember just instinctively thinking that target doesn't make sense because Georgia Avenue is a main thoroughfare for the black community. And I was able to organize people towards a different target, the Department of Justice. And it was a successful action. We mobilized maybe a thousand students and we shut down the Department of Justice. There were cameras there, CNN reported it, and it triggered the undersecretary uh, in the Department of Justice to come to Howard for them to open up an investigation. Uh, it was unsuccessful, but that experience taught me the value of direct action. And then, you know, the other experience, which is not a, not on the nose political, was the fact that I had joined the underground hardcore punk rock scene and I was making music and touring across the country. And that put me in, in contact with a lot of America. You know, I'm in the Bible Belt. I'm playing shows that are maybe 100% white and in Alabama and in Kansas and in Iowa, I'm in places I would never ever imagine myself interacting with these folks. And I built an awareness of the the diverse nature of America. Like I grew up, I grew up in, in New York. I grew up um, on the coast. And that experience, and you know, my music was very, very political. And I was I was engaging in a strategy that I would eventually hone where I'm meeting people where they're at and I'm not speaking to the to the choir. I'm organizing people who are the sons and daughters of the, the Christian right through my music. And my music is explicitly about black power and resistance and changing the paradigms and st structural change of our economy and our society. And, you know, I wouldn't have known that me getting involved in music would be a key to me deepening my understanding of the country that I would be committed to organize. But that also uh, was a key learning very, very early on. And then fast forward to when Trayvon Martin was killed. So again, so I am 20 years old, um, 19, 20 years old when Prince Jones was killed. And that was the, the police killing that I think was the, the one that registered deeply with me. Police murders of black people have been a backdrop of my life politically. And so from Prince Jones to Trayvon Martin, where I organized mass mobilizations with a number of folks in New York, in Manhattan, and then Michael Brown, where because of my dissatisfaction with the inability for us to actually deliver justice for, for Trayvon Martin's family, when Michael Brown was killed, I felt I had already promised to myself that I would go above and beyond and do everything in my power for the next family to experience justice. And so I quit my job. I left my friend's family and my home. I packed my home up. I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle, and there's a very long story, but I found myself in St. Louis working with people, working with activists and organizers, some of which who today I consider family. What I witnessed, what the very brave 
working class black folks in a in a uh, midwestern su- a suburb what they taught me those lessons i carry with me today i saw the future i saw the the future of the black liberation movement i saw free black people who responded to the overreach of our government with solidarity they responded to violence with solidarity and it took my breath away and it transformed me and it was enough i felt like i i, I had saw I've witnessed something that that I always imagined maybe could be real. I saw it there. They gave me permission to believe that victory, that liberation could come in our lifetime. And that spark is resonant in me today. And I think fast forwarding to 2020, from that day in August, I have I have never rested. From that day in August, a fire has just has burnt in me because I saw what was possible. So I am convinced that that is possible. And I've, I worked with many people around the country to build the movement for black lives over, over four years from 2014 to 2018. And what brought me to the work that I do right now, where I'm doing multiracial work was I saw and, and I'm not one of those people that was like prescient, that knew Donald Trump would win. I knew that our country was more racist than we accepted. I knew that there were a lot of very, very racist people. I did not think that such an undisciplined candidate would be able to be victorious. I just did not think it was possible. And so I learned a lot and I was humbled by Donald Trump's victory. And I was in the movement for Black Lives with a team called Blackbird, with my colleagues Tenjue McHarris and and Mervyn Marcano. And I felt duty bound to make linkages between our ability to organize outside power, to organize the power in the streets, and our ability to govern. Because the thing that I recognized was And we have examples outside of the context of the US that it's a two-step that takes place. You build enough capacity in order to eventually topple dictators or flip paradigms or topple whole structures uh, of oppression or be able to abolish slavery, for example. Now, when you do that thing, what you're doing is you're creating a vacuum, right? So social movements, they pose questions. Social movements, when they're effective, they surface contradictions. They render the invisible visible. That's what they do when they're at their best. But they don't necessarily answer those questions or resolve those contradictions or fill those power vacuums that are left behind when you topple a dictator. And so the most organized forces are able to do those things. And generally, under capitalism, the most organized force is organized capital. Or, you know, in the context of Egypt, the most organized force was the... The military. Islam. It was eventually the military, but the Muslim Brotherhood then followed by the military, right? And so it's the two-step that we actually have to innovate. The two-step to to topple systems of oppression, but then fill the gap and 
so my mission now is developing that two-step, is cultivating the ability to topple dictators and topple systems of oppression, but then use governance and you know build a political party that could fill the gap. When I think of what in South Africa they, they were able to do with the ANC, a political party in Kosatu, the largest union of black folks and uh, the Communist Party, they had a tripartite relationship that you know, as well as other forces that w- was able to topple apartheid. And, you know, there's a lot of contradictions there. Right? Yeah, because when the street didn't keep up the, the battle with governance and governance got corrupt, then there were pro- eventually there were problems in South Africa, for sure. Absolutely. But you've got and to have South- both sides. I, I couldn't agree more, you know, for what it's worth. I think now, learning from Obama 08, learning from Trump, Hillary, 16. We're now, I think, you know, learning from South Africa, learning from Egypt, learning from Occupy, learning from the movement for Black Lives 2014 on. In 2020, I think we have enough learnings where we could erect this inside-outside street and governance strategy, but it requires us in the movement to believe that we should be in power. And that is a not a given. That is not a given. I think it requires us to deal with the, the uncomfortable shift from being uh, sort of from maintaining a consistent role as the reliable opposition to actually believing and knowing that we could run things, that we could actually be the ones making these decisions versus always the ones on the street critiquing and challenging and pushing. What would happen if we're critiquing, challenging and pushing from the outside as we govern from the inside? We're doing both. Yeah. We're both leading and we're both. And so this brings me back to the double consciousness and the triple consciousness. What would it mean if we are both in power and forming the critique of power at the same time? What would that look like? And I, it's one of the reasons why I believe that black folks and other people who are of marginal experience are uniquely positioned to lead because we have developed this, this cognitive and spiritual gift of being able to be in multiple places at the same time. And that's what's required of a social movement that has the capacity to actually lead and win in this in this moment. We need to be in multiple places at the same time. We need to govern and critique and to challenge and to push all at the same time. We need to be in multiple lanes. That is a survival technique of black folks. We know about being in multiple lanes. We know about talking multiple languages. And so we could apply that to our strategy at a time where I feel in 2020, we're uniquely positioned to win. Wow. You call it in terms of this decade of sort of trauma in polit- in governing politics in America and this, again, trauma with Trump in the White House and yet, and then this year happened, you know, and, yeah. and then there was a police murder of George Floyd and yes. something that many people didn't expect but maybe many other people did expect emerged. How would you describe what happened? 
the New York Times recently reported that this current wave of movement is the largest social movement in U.S. history, right? And, you know, I, I do not think that most people thought during a 100-year pandemic, in order to follow public health advice, we're told to stay home and socially distance, that we would also have the largest mobilizations in U.S. history, and it would be focused on specifically the condition of black people in this country. I don't think that that was a given. What, what I do think, though, is when you consider everything at play, it makes all the sense in the world. And we've talked a lot about all of these intersecting crises and intersecting realities in our conversation. So is it about George Floyd? I say yes and. So it's about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and many other black folks who were killed in this time period. Yes. Is it about something deeper? Yes. It's also about the four to five months that all of us, all 300, 300 million plus U.S. residents and then the billions of us around the world have been responding to COVID-19. And the fact that in the U.S. we're experiencing depression level unemployment and there's food lines that are spanning hours and hours, and people are suffering. It's about that as well. And it's also about the unique way that our government treats black folks. So in order to, in order to maintain these uh, social distancing regulations, the police have been involved. And in communities where there's high concentrations of black people, Police have used COVID-19 and the policing regime around it as another excuse to, to brutalize black and brown young folks like in New York. Remember I said I was born 1979? Yeah. 1979, that's the beginning of the neoliberal era. And so it's a full 40 years of the neoliberal era, of this era of disinvesting from the commons, disinvesting from our communities. It's also 40 plus years of the era of mass incarceration, where there's deep investments in jails, prisons, and police. That's all the backdrop of what's taking place. And, and there's these cleavages, these race, class, and gender cleavages that are, are becoming so apparent when COVID-19 collapses all of our systems. So these systems that we were told were sturdy, were the foundations of the infrastructure of the most powerful and the wealthiest country in the history of nation states totally collapsed us. And so it made apparent the, the insufficiencies and the failures of neoliberal capitalism, of racial capitalism, of, uh, of our health, health delivery system, which is, which is based on profit, not need. And it made it so apparent that everybody saw this. And the logic of neoliberalism went out the window. So, for example, the idea that healthcare is a commodity to be bought and sold and traded, that the debate on that was settled by COVID-19 because everybody understood that whatever your identity, whoever you are, 
if you are ill and you're in my community, your illness is a risk to the health and well-being of me and my family. And so if I'm not doing everything to ensure that I develop a health care system and a public health system that makes sure that your family is safe, I'm threatening the well-being of my family. That's not only true for, for people in my, in my proximate community. It's true for a person who works in a wet market in Wuhan or in West Africa. If, if somebody is ill because we have this invention called air travel <laughs> and they get on a plane and come to New York and spread an illness to New York, whoever they are, they they could threaten the well-being of, of my family. So these national distinctions, these ideas that we have these hardened borders, that logic is, is out the window. And so it, what, what actually emerges is a possibility for internationalism that is based on our lived experience and our need to keep our people safe. In order for me to be safe, I need to make sure that other people are safe. Right. That is a COVID-19 logic. This this logic of of who is an essential worker, it totally flips the capitalist paradigm on its head because we now are clear that the people that bring value to our economy are the people who are maintaining our food chain, people who are working long hours, picking tomatoes and produce and truckers who are driving that cross country and people who work all across the food, food chain, people in groceries. Mm, and in people, abattoirs. All folks, yes. And, and, and all of these folks who are making minimum wage and who are, who are threatening their lives during the moment of a pandemic. Everybody worldwide understands that these people are the most essential. Sanitation workers, nobody worldwide is under the aspersion that hedge fund, hedge fund managers are more essential than tomato pickers. <laughs> that is very right? true. No one, <laughs> no one under COVID-19 is under that, under that delusion that hedge fund managers have more intrinsic value to all of us and our economy than tomato pickers. So we had a collective sort of crash course in Marxism <laughs> overnight, <laughs> right? And so, <laughs> so, well, and, and, and so it's not simply about George Floyd and the four months or four or five months over COVID-19 or, or neoliberalism and the 40 years of, of the neoliberal consensus, which I think is decaying before our eyes. It's also about the four centuries from 1619 to 2019 and now 2020, where black, black folks, where Africans were enslaved and brought to this country in bondage. And the ideology that allowed, quote unquote, Christian European colonial powers to do that, the ideology of white supremacy, which was designed to create some sort of legitimacy for why these nations were buying, trading, sometimes killing, raping people and forming them into commodities. That is white supremacy. And so when you actually consider all those things, 
if it, if it wasn't George Floyd's horrible torture murder, it would have been something else that would have ignited our nation. And it surely would have been black folks that would have been leading it. Yeah, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. So I was wondering if we could just talk about some of the your observations of some of the strategies and pieces of work that have happened in the movements. And I was wanting to ask you about particular ones based actually on the lessons that you said that you'd got from your organising in the in the decade and a half previous to this moment. You, you mentioned five strategies. Uh, the first one that I was going to ask you about is the power of direct action. You mentioned in your pre-2020 life, having learnt very early on about the power of direct action and targeting. You told that story of Howard Howard University. I'm wondering, I mean, direct action has been an extraordinary part of what we've seen over the last few months in Black Lives Matter. How have you seen that particular form of action uh, be powerful? What's working? Why do you think it's powerful now? Absolutely. So direct action is a is a art and it's a science. So when it's executed well, you're able to tell a story that is a wide-scale education to numerous audiences. And so the perfect direct action tells a story about a particular contradiction that you want the broader community the general public to witness. And so you have to call out that contradiction. This is something that John Lewis, that folks in the civil rights movement, that's that was basically the, the strategy behind, behind nonviolent direct action. We're gonna call out the violence of the state by being nonviolent um, and by showing up nonviolently but resisting in a nonviolent way we will trigger the state's violence and we will we will trigger this contradiction because we are protesting the violence and then they respond by metting out the violence that we're protesting and thus proving our point to a broad audience of people and then as a result mobilizing many more people in righteous ang- anger to join us it's an invitation so it does multiple things Direct action at its finest is an, indif- is an invitation. It's an organizing tool. And it, prevents, it presents a very stark, clear, moral invitation to join the side of the, those of us on the freedom side. The, the politics inherent in our actions is allowing us to tell a story about the st- state violence that Black people have been resisting since we came here. So... Just to be clear, when black folks are attacked by police because we're protesting against the police, the the absurdity of that is exposed to everybody. And then now more people join our ranks. So now we have a multiracial crew of people who are then attacked by the police. And now when people outside of our identity, but people of relatively privileged identity are attacked, that, that mobilizes more people, and it, it harms the American sensibility, for example, to see in Buffalo, New York, a elderly white man be brutalized by police simply because he's in, involved in political activity. And that was a national trauma on top of the national trauma on top of the national trauma. And it's a cycle that is building and building, and it's telling a story that if I had 
done a Zoom call so that I could talk about black liberation. <laughs> There's no way I would have been able to reach as many people, politicize as many people, radicalize as many people. It is both an invitation, it gives people permission, and it is mass education all at the same time. And the last thing it does is because it's direct, it actually directly confronts the actual source of the violence. So we go directly to the police department. We go directly to the police line, right? There's no intermediaries. It is a very powerful form of resistance because of its elegance, because it, it when done right, has the ability to do all those things at the same time and to scale. You could reach millions of people with the proper a, a properly organized and crafted direct action. And sometimes the direct action doesn't need to be a mass direct action. You could have a direct action that is a very, very small scale. Sometimes they involve few people, but they always, when they're effective, down to the every single detail, the action logic, the politics, the the narrative, every detail should be thought of with the outcome clearly being how are we building our ranks? How are we uh, demobilizing their ranks? How are we telling a story that is an invitation to our people? How are we ensuring that our activity engenders support from the, from the general population and doesn't distance ourselves from our people? All of those things are thought out when, when we're doing a proper and, and well thought out direct action. Yeah. Wow. It's sort of, we've, you know, all the way out here in Australia, and I'm sure for other observers around the world, we've all watched the, the direct action on the television, right, over, over months, over months. And I feel like that's a great explanation of some of the sort of thinking that's gone behind this, this such well-orchestrated strategy. I want to ask you a question now about theory of change. So you talked about that speech and all the way back at Howard University where it was sort of this, I felt like it was like a radical acceptance that movements have different theories of change. And I'm conscious that Black Lives Matter as a movement has also, it seems like Black Lives Matter is, is moving through that space in a really creative and interesting way. Sure. And I also want to make a distinction, right? And this is a distinction that in the U.S. people don't aren't aware of it. So I'm sure in Australia, often people aren't aware of it. When I talk about the movement, when people within the movement talk about the movement, we talk about the movement for Black Lives, right? Black Lives Matter Global Network is a particular organization within this movement, but the movement has dozens and dozens and dozens of grassroots organizations that are led by and focused on black liberation, some of them national, some of them regional, some of them local. And the way that we talk about that network of organizations and people often aligned around things, sometimes in contention and and in disagreement about other things, but ultimately aligned around basic principles and, and coordinated around fundamental things, we call that the movement for black lives. So I just wanted to Share that with That's your audience. That's really helpful. I feel I feel educated, but also I'm sure that that helps others because I, I, I don't think we fully understand that distinction, or at least I didn't, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And so to answer your question, from the very beginning in 2014, we're meeting in various cities, having conversations about how we want to show up as a movement, understanding 
I think we all understood the gravity of what was being built around us and the need for us to take this very seriously and to learn lessons, right? To learn lessons from the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, the, you know, uh, talk to our, our elders and our, uh, and, you know, both have a good reading of history, have a good ideological basis for what it is that we're building. One of the things I think, also learning from recent events, learning from what worked and what maybe didn't work from Occupy, we felt very clear that we needed to build a ecosystem, have an ecosystem approach and have a leader full approach where there wasn't just one leader. There were a number of us grounded in organizing, grounded in local communities in a way that was autonomous and decentralized, but coordinated, right? So that there were, that there was scaffolding that made what we were doing coherent so that if we were moving and we were taking an action together collectively around the country, we used a common theory of change, a common hashtag, a common demand. But underneath those demands, there was a lot of space locally for people to take different tactics, for people to use a different narrative approach based on that overall demand and based on that framework, because we understood that we needed to be nimble. We needed to be flexible and we needed to innovate in real time. And we needed to learn from one another. And that what we hadn't done is perfected a stance and then hardened that perfected stance and then attempt to replicate it or, or have some sort of a franchise model. We understood that that wouldn't work and that what we needed to be was adaptive and nimble in the way that, you know, we organized capital is adaptive and nimble. And so we wanted to be as adaptive and nimble as our opponents. And so there was some thinking applied to the decentralized but coordinated structures that we created. So we focused on principles. We spent a lot of time with one another debating, arguing, and hammering out principles that guided the work that we did. And the principles and our shared relationships and, and our kinship and trust across regions and across cities helped us keep the container together, even as some of us are involved in policy, some of us are involved in electoral justice work, some of us are involved in um, direct action. We actually built structures to, to, to hold these different tendencies rather than try to shoehorn one tendency and one strategy and one tactic into a movement, we accepted the fact that the movement should be large enough to hold all of those tendencies. And that was something that we, we committed to at the, the onset. We understand that one of the common, just historical deficiencies in social movements has been our proclivity for sectarianism. And we work very hard to ensure that the movement for Black Lives is not a sectarian movement. So from the very onset, I think it was, I know it was a commitment that we create a movement that is a broad invitation for people to find their lane and not ask for permission 
and then align around the strategy and the principles in that particular lane. So there's room for a legal strategy. There's room for a direct action strategy. There's room for organizing. There's room for mobilization. And it's actually foolish for us to debate which tool, which practice, which tactic is the best. The answer is yes. (laughs) They are the best when nested in a ecosystem approach. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's just so profoundly helpful. I'm sure there are people who are involved in social movements who are going to, who are listening to this right now thinking, oh, if only our movement could be so opened in, in such a profoundly helpful way. But I certainly hope that what you're doing with the Movement for Black Lives is something that is a massive teaching moment for everyone with your success, as well as a changing moment, you know, like that there is a sort of the, that it's building capacity as well as just making the radical change that's going to be required in the United States, but around the world on these questions. Final question, Maurice, which is just, you know, when you have a still moment, and I'm sure you don't have heaps of still moments because it's a busy time, but when you have a still moment thinking about the last couple of months with the Movement for Black Lives and all that has happened, what do you think is the most important insight you have gained about, about how, to, how to make change in the world? One of the most important insights I have is that we're in the midst of a political realignment. That's what's happening. That doesn't come across all the time, every year, every election cycle, I think is happening now. And I think inside of this political realignment, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about change that I think is true during political realignments and during sort of regular periods. It has a lot to do with approach. And I think one of the ways that I was trained, I was trained in a very regimented regimented way to be an organizer. And I appreciate that training. And I, I actually believe that people should be trained in a very disciplined, rigorous way to develop an understanding of a particular model. But it is wholly insufficient to just replicate that model. I think a hardened politic is a dying politic. And it is our job to always be moved by our time, place, and condition. Therefore, we always need to maintain a posture of humility before changing conditions and maintain a posture of curiosity in our engagement in our times and conditions. If I were to single out one personal attribute that I think is fundamental for leadership in this moment and organizers in this moment, it's humility. Because when you possess authentic humility, you have the ability to change, to course correct, and to learn. But when you're, when you are almost in a fundamentalist posture when it comes to your tactics, your politics, your ideology, then you're unmoved by a changing world. You're unmoved by changing conditions. Therefore, you can adapt and provide what's necessary for working people. You don't use ideology as a, as a cudgel to hit over the head of somebody in order to prove that they 
are less righteous or not as radical or what have you. Ideology, when it's when it's most useful, is a prism. It's simply a prism to to look at your time, place, and conditions, and to forecast future time, place, and conditions. And those of us that are able to have that prism and use it in that way, I think that's where ideology is most useful. But when you use ideology in a fundamentalist way, where you shoehorn time, place, and conditions into your narrow ideological gaze, that is a hardened politic that, to me, like I said before, is a dying politic. So what I've learned in this moment where there's been so much change and where this moment is a moment that has been so unpredictable, this election cycle, it's humbled me deeply. Maurice, thank you so much. I, I particularly appreciate the call for sort of open-mindedness and curiosity and recognising that we don't have all the answers and perhaps wisdom is knowing that we don't always know. It's... Um, refreshing actually for someone who's in the middle of something so successful at the moment to to be know that people like you are holding on to such an, an open-mindedness it sort of speaks to the power of where you're at I think thank you so much well it's been a pleasure I, I really I appreciate this conversation this dialogue oh no thank you so much and <laughs> you never know we might get you back on again to to talk about the election once it's done who knows how that ends up hey <laughs> Sure, anytime. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Walkerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We're also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website. <laughs>